the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon. Five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. here on your basic Wednesday. And uh, welcome on board. Good to have you with us on another edition of Lifeline. We are, of course, here each Monday through Friday addressing issues that impact your life and your world And we're going to do more of the same today. We'll talk a bit about impact of climate change, whether or not much of what we hear is right on target or potentially really overly exaggerated. And how do you tell the difference? Certainly here in the San Francisco Bay Area, as we watch things like the increased number of fires every year and the horrific devastation to both um, private property and to life, you have to wonder after a while. And certainly when you run around during summer and you have multiple days in the Bay Area where the temperatures exceed 100 degrees, do you begin to believe that maybe those that promote climate change have a point. Well, we're going to talk about it. We're going to be joined by a research associate who has a Ph.D. in physics from the University of Texas at Dallas. Dr. Jake Herbert will join us later on in the program tonight to discuss just that very issue. And speaking of fires, we've got an update for you on forest fires across the state of California. As we know, we're once again in another one of those red danger zones and will be for the next coming several days, even as the Creek Fire down in Fresno, more than a month old, still only 55% contained. Unbelievable. All right. So we'll get to all that a little bit later on in the program. But first, let's get to um, the big water cooler talk today, and that is day number three of the confirmation hearing for Amy Coney Barrett. And, of course, uh, today, facing questions about everything from presidential powers to the Affordable Care Act, Americans got a bit of a tutorial during the uh, hearings on the legal doctrine of severability from Judge Barrett. Affordable Care Act, in fact, may not be in as much peril as some think when the Supreme Court hears arguments next month on the fate of the law, as the lesson on severability helped us to better understand that just because a portion of a law might be bad, or in this case unconstitutional, doesn't necessarily mean the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. So let's get a look at exactly what transpired on Capitol Hill today. Joining me now is Attorney Matthew Forres, Assistant Counsel General. He's also written amicus briefs on behalf of the Supreme Court for a variety of important issues, including immigration, administrative, and election law. And, uh, Counselor, thanks so much for taking some time to be with us today. Uh, give us kind of your 30,000-foot-high uh, view as to how the hearings went today. Certainly a much different atmosphere than what we saw during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, that's to be sure. Absolutely. Yes, well, I would say that Judge Barrett is continuing a pretty remarkable performance during these hearings. 
when she's challenged with difficult questions, she's able to recall details from her academic writings and her judicial opinions with ease. She's able to talk about different Supreme Court opinions on many different areas of the law in a way that's just masterful. So she's described the role of the judge, theories of constitutional interpretation, and other very complex legal issues in a way that's easy to understand. And at the same time, she's very calm and unflappable, giving the kind of demeanor that you would expect from a judge. And certainly, I think, critically important, given the nature of these hearings, their proximity to the election, which is now less than three weeks away, and the sense that, sadly, so much of these hearings in recent years, and I don't know, maybe I need to take that back when I think about what um, uh, Robert Bork went through, uh, my goodness, 30, 40-plus years ago. Uh, But nevertheless, they have been certainly, in recent decades, more than over-politicized when it seems to go more to perhaps the heart of personal opinions or um, uh, ideas related to one's own uh, ideology or viewpoints on issues, as opposed to the understanding of the law, most importantly in this case, the understanding of the United States Constitution, and whether or not any given case that would come before the high court in future years, uh, how that would uh, ultimately be looked at in the light of original law and the, the intent of the founding fathers. And I, I have to wonder, how dangerous is it, in your opinion, Counselor, when we seem to get off into these sort of um, rabbit trails into ideology and personal beliefs? I mean, I, I don't know that we'll ever find a judge that will come to any courtroom and say, I have no opinion on any subject whatsoever. I mean, <laughs> that seems to be wholly um, impossible and highly, I think, irresponsible to suggest that any personal opinion ought to always somehow characterize or colorize a judge's opinion or decision in one direction or another. Right. You know, judges are obviously human beings, but the, the role of the judge is to be the neutral arbiter. Um, and the judge does not want to give off any hint of impartiality. If you're a black person and you're coming before a judge and you know that judge has anti-black animus, you don't want to go anywhere near this judge. Or you're a criminal defendant and this judge is always pro-police and he's talked about how he always believes the police. You wouldn't want to be in that courtroom. I mean, that and that is what's driving um, Judge Amy Coney Barrett. She's following the kind of the ethical counts for judges to not talk about contested issues or politically charged issues that may come before a court so that she does not give a tip-off or a hint of impartiality. So she's respecting the institutional role of of the judiciary in, in our governmental system. Clearly, some of the questioning is designed to present some of those gotchas uh, to make her reveal a strongly held position that may somehow prejudice her uh, in one direction or another. And what I find always ironic about this is it's always hypothetical. How can you then, during a confirmation hearing, ask somebody who is uh, up for uh, that position to somehow give a definitive response 
on a viewpoint to a hypothetical case that is not, in fact, currently before the court. Take, for example, the issue of abortion. I've never seen, let alone in these last uh, now three confirmation hearings, how much emphasis gets placed on that as if somehow to suggest that if a potential justice um, has feelings that are predisposed toward um, defending the position of life, that that's somehow going to entirely disqualify them or they want to somehow get them to render an opinion with a case that's not even before them. It's ridiculous. Right. And what we're seeing from the left is is really kind of uh, an encapsulation of the difference the way of, in the way that the left and the right see the role of the judge. All the questions that come from the left are more like, I see you voted this way in workers' rights cases. You know, you voted for the, the company and not the worker eight out of ten times, as if the result is always what's most important and not whether or not the law was on the worker's side or the, the company's side. And it's really strange that they just see it as one more results-oriented approach to what a judge is supposed to be. In their mind, it's almost like another super legislator that will have a thumb on the scale on, on behalf of the people that they want to support or the ideas that they want to support. In contrast, Republicans are looking for neutral judges. We, we talk about we do, not want, uh, we do not want judges to get on the bench and then make new law. We want them to interpret the law. And, you know, I mean, there's a degree to which I get the notion of being curious about a potential judge's personal opinions or personal values. But at the end of the day, in this context, isn't the more important case, a question rather, just how impartial and fair they will be in light of not prevailing public opinion or which direction the political winds are going in, but rather um, that a person will take a look at law as being challenged for whatever reason and coming before the high court in light of the constitutionality question, meaning does this square and, and, and fit in nicely and consistently with the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights, or does it not? And if the answer is it does not, well, then I think the answer is to whether or not uh, uh, a law ought to stand is pretty clear. And if it does, well, same thing there. And that seems to be one, one principle that, doesn't, that, that kind of slips away. There, there is less talk about her understanding of the historicity of the United States Constitution than there has been about her own personal opinions. Right. And we see that with the Obamacare opinion, right? The, the Democrats during these hearings have been putting up pictures of individuals who've suffered and have medical conditions and are afraid of losing their losing their health care um, because of pre-existing conditions might not be covered in the future, right? But it really, this is a policy question. The role of the justice from the United States Supreme Court is to take a look and see whether or not the legislation that Congress writes fits within the rules. The Constitution is what the, the rules of the game are for how our, our laws are passed. And if laws go beyond the powers of Congress that violate the Commerce Clause, as many conservatives thought with Obamacare, well, then they'll strike the law down. It's not up to the judge to be thinking about whether or not it's a good policy or a bad policy, just whether or not it comports with the United States Constitution. 
Well, and that's where I thought her her sort of lesson <laughs> schooling um, of of the judicial committee uh, made perfect sense when she talked about um, the the, uh, the 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 doctrine of severability and uh, the sense that just because a portion of a law may not square with the Constitution doesn't mean that it necessarily in its entirety needs to be dispensed with. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's an important distinction that she made. Uh, your sense so far overall in terms as we're day, day three in as to how these, these hearings are going, and do you think that uh, uh, unlike some of the raucous questioning that we saw with Brett Kavanaugh, if, if this is going to head quickly to a vote? It certainly looks that way. And I, I have to say I'm very surprised that it's gone so smoothly so far. You know, in the Kavanaugh hearings, they interrupted uh, Chairman Grassley about two minutes into his opening statement. And so everyone was kind of prepared for some kind of fireworks to distract or disrupt the event. But so far that hasn't happened. The only thing that may come, we think, might be, uh, you know, if, if a senator gets COVID and there's a way to disrupt uh, having a quorum to make the votes. But that's really the only thing left, it appears, that's going to stall the nomination. Well, we certainly appreciate uh, your insight, Counselor, as to how this is progressing along. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to uh, the next uh, committee hearing as things continue to uh, progress forward. And, uh, you know, a likelihood is she's going to be confirmed. Our thanks to Assistant General Counsel Matthew Forres for being with us on this segment of Lunchbox. 517 Traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, there's a lot of issues at stake in this election, as you are well aware. And um, one of the issues that we've been following here in California is we're trying to deal with addressing the election, addressing COVID-19, and to a more immediate pressing sense of urgency, California wildfires. Nearly 4 million acres have been destroyed. And to be sure, and I say this as a lifelong Californian, each subsequent fire season seems to come earlier, run longer, and have more damaging consequences to it. And of course, many would suggest that this is all a result of climate change that we are witnessing, that we are paying the price for years of spewing carbon monoxide, into the atmosphere, the impact of burning coal, the internal combustion engine, on and on the list goes. From a practical standpoint, we can probably argue that there are extremist opinions on both sides, on both ends of the spectrum. Those that say, don't worry about the environment, it'll take care of itself, the planet's been here for thousands of years, or if your persuasion, millions of years, so there's really nothing to worry about. And others that say we need to turn out all the lights and hunker down tomorrow. And uh, not only do we have to stop cows from fluctuating in the fields, but stop breathing too, so we can all do our part to save the planet. Often the truth is somewhere in between. So let's get to the truth, shall we? Dr. Jake Herbert is with us today, research associate at the Institute for Creation Research. He has his Ph.D. in physics from the University of Texas at Dallas. 
And, Doctor, good to have you with us. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let's talk a bit about all of this. Uh, Start with the notion that um, industrialization and the like um, certainly seem to be at a forensic pace in the second half of the 20th century. And uh, if you listen to some scientists, they will suggest that that largely has been the cause of the the climate change that we've been experiencing, everything from the melting of the polar ice caps to sea rise to things like extended fire seasons and, and things of that sort. And then, as I suggest, there's the other opinion that says there's nothing here to see at all. Give me your sense from the research that you have done um, is it true, as maybe in a lot of cases where there are really stark extremes, that ultimately the truth lies somewhere in between? Well, uh, I think probably, probably one good way to set this up is to, and this is something that's not controversial among people who study this kind of thing, if you were to double the amount of atmospheric carbon dioxide um, uh, in the air, and you and everything else were to stay the same, the temperature would increase only about a degree Celsius. Okay, so right there, that tells you that the the increase of CO2 by itself is not really the issue. What the real issue, and and uh, people on both sides of this debate will agree, the heart of this issue is something called climate sensitivity. And uh, climate sensitivity is what the climate does after you double the amount of atmospheric carbon dioxide and everything has a chance to settle down. That one degree uh, Celsius temperature increase I told you about, that's assuming nothing else changes. Uh, But the climate system is very complicated, so if you change one thing, it's going to change something else. And you have all these feedbacks that could either amplify the uh, increase in temperature or they could attenuate it, okay, minimize it. And so those who are worried about this issue think climate sensitivity is high. Uh, They think that uh, after everything settles down, you're going to get a big temperature increase. And those of us who are not as worried about this think climate sensitivity is low. And that's really the heart of the debate. It's it's not even really whether or not, you know, if you put more CO2 into the atmosphere, uh, whether you'll get a temperature increase. You will. Uh, it's just a question of what happens after everything else settles down. Is that temperature increase going to be small, or is it going to ultimately be really big? And I'm of the opinion that I don't, I don't think it's something that we really need to worry about. And I'm curious in terms of the, the behavior here on Earth and the, the ensuing impact that it has. What are we talking about in terms of lag or lead time? In other words, I made reference to uh, the ways in which we, we just sort of did whatever we wanted um, for a good portion of the uh, the 20th century, to be sure. I think we started to really think about this with a bit of, of seriousness in the 1970s, but it wasn't until probably the late 80s that we really started to pay attention to it. If, for example, Governor Newsom, let's pick on him for a moment, uh, makes the proclamation a couple of weeks ago that we are going to outlaw the internal combustion engine here in the state of California. We've got 15 years, make it closer to 14 years, in which all of that to happen. And once we shut that thing down, I have to wonder, even if we did that, if we took every car off of every road in the entire state of California, um, what would the response time of the of the, the the climate and temperature be to something like that? Would we see an, an instant improvement? Would it be decades down the road? How can we even measure that? 
Uh, that's a good question. I think uh, it depends if you're talking about, you know, there's a short-term response and a long-term response, uh, because it also depends on, like, times for the oceans to uh, give up or absorb heat. And so if you're talking about uh, this equilibrium climate sensitivity that I was talking about, you're talking about a really long time, um, you know, probably hundreds of years. Um, but but uh, as far as some of this other stuff, you might, you might see um, – Short, short-term responses. I, I don't. I don't think that's really too controversial. Uh, you know. Um, you know. Even, even just the atmosphere. You know, with the lockdown, you saw an improvement in air quality uh, pretty quickly uh, because we were uh, decreasing the amount of um, uh, driving and things like that. Now, whether or not I don't know if that would necessarily have the same lag time when you're talking about something like CO2. Uh, but at least for pollution, yeah, you could you might see a fairly quick effect there. And certainly, I mean, that makes sense. If you look at uh, an area like the San Francisco Bay Area, for example, uh, over the, the, the Christmas holiday, uh, people are fewer people are working. A lot of folks are on vacation. Yeah. Uh, if the weather cooperates, uh, the air seems cleaner and we see an immediate short term measurable a positive impact of all that, but the long term, I think, is what we're what we're really interested in here today. And I I was fascinated. You make mention about the fact that we saw some significant improvements just because of the the pandemic and lockdowns taking place everywhere. And yet, I think for a state like California, uh, for as much uh, carbon that we did not put in the air from March until, say, August, uh, we made up for that in spades many times over, given the amount of acreage that is burned and the amount of pollutants mm-hmm. and, and so forth that we put into the air in a very short period of time. And I guess the one factor, and this is I really want to kind of drill down into this, there's what we can be doing from a stewardship standpoint to protect the planet, but then there are the, the factors that we can't control, like volcanoes, like wildfires, that are going to do what they do as they've always done since the beginning of time. And I guess to the greatest degree, there really is nothing that mankind can do to either stop it or even to try and reverse it or mitigate it, is there? Well, in the case of the wildfires, there probably is. You know, there's a lot of people who think that what you're going through, it has to do with the fact that they have not been clearing all this deadwood. And it's just making your forest a tinderbox and uh, causing it to be a lot worse than it could, than it has to be. Oh, and no doubt about that. I mean, the density of, of forested areas in California, both on federal and state lands, has become ridiculous. And where 50, 60 years ago, we would go in and say, you know, we're not going to clear cut, but let's remove trees and we can build houses and things of that sort. Now we've taken the position, oh, no, that's absolutely verboten. And so, you know, what we don't cut down, the fire manages to cut down. Yeah. Yeah, you're seeing consequences of that. I mean, you're seeing, you know, and and it's ironic because the people who are opposed to clearing that deadwood would argue that they're doing it for the environment, but it looks like you know, the the you know, you have the law of unintended consequences. Exactly. You know, where where there are things you didn't anticipate. And uh I, I can tell you this, as Christians, we ought to be good stewards of the environment, uh, but I, I think the alarmism on this issue is very much tied to a denial of the biblical worldview. 
Um, it turns out uh, that some of the main arguments uh, for high climate sensitivity uh, basically come from a denial of, of Scripture. Uh, for one thing, I mean, you can make a theological argument uh, that climate sensitivity ought to be low, because God designed the planet. Uh, you know, you would not be surprised if he put feedbacks, negative feedbacks, in the system that would keep things from going to a big extreme, one way or the other. Um, and, of course, if you don't believe that, if you're an evolutionist, then you have no reason to think that that might be the case. Um, but the scientific arguments for high climate sensitivity, I think, are very dubious. There's really only three main arguments uh, for high climate sensitivity. One is what I would call junk science. That's stuff that should really never have been published in the first place. And uh, the infamous hockey stick graph uh, that Michael Mann of Penn State University oh, yes. did, that's, that's an example of that. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff there that was seemed good at the time, but people later realized that it wasn't. The other argument, uh, there's two other arguments, and uh, one of them is very relevant to something I've done. Uh, but the second argument is coming from computer models, where they will try to predict how much warming you're going to have. And we know that if you look at past predictions of these models uh, and compared them with the observations that were later made, they're almost always too hot. They're, they run hot. They overpredict the amount of warming. And uh, you know, people, the, the models are fairly simple. They're, they they don't they aren't complicated enough to really put all put in all the details uh, that you need to really do that accurately. And so the final argument for climate high climate sensitivity comes from the secular ice age theory, um, which uh, this is something I've actually done a lot of work on. Um, you know, the secular scientists, you know, we creationists think there was an ice age, and it was caused by the Genesis flood. Uh, it was a fairly short event. It only lasted probably around 700 years. That's our best estimate. And it was caused as a direct result of the flood. And, uh, you know, if you want to come to our website, icr.org, you can read, read a lot about how the flood caused that. And it, it's a fairly straightforward explanation. But if you don't accept that, then you obviously have to come up with another explanation for a past ice age. And secular scientists, the, the, the theory that they love right now is called the Milankovitch or Astronomical Ice Age Theory. And it's the idea that over tens of thousands and even hundreds of thousands of years, there are changes in the tilt of the Earth's axis, uh, subtle changes in the shape of the orbit, and that's supposed to change the way the sunlight falls on Earth, and that's supposed to control the timing of ice ages. Uh, now, there's really uh, nothing about that theory really makes sense. There's, it's got all kinds of problems, but the one thing it had going for it is a paper that was published in 1976 called The Pacemaker of the Ice Ages. And that purported to show evidence uh, that of an astronomical influence on our climate uh, going back roughly 500,000 years. Uh, now, of course, I don't accept those age assignments, um, but what's interesting, I, I found out after doing some digging, is that when the evolutionists did those calculations, they used an age assignment that they no longer accept as valid. Hmm. And so I was thinking, hey, I wonder what would happen if you were to go back and redo the calculations using the new number, the number that they claim now is the correct number. 
And so I did that, and I went back and redid the calculations, and it messes it up. It Everything up tends to fall point. apart at that point, yeah, which makes perfect sense. And you know, and so, it, and so you know, it's it's, and I think I don't think a lot of people realize this. In fact, I think a lot of professional scientists out there don't realize just how shaky the evidence for this theory is, and that's one of the main arguments for high climate sensitivity. Well, and bad data renders bad results that creates bad science and causes us to draw bad conclusions. And, uh, you know, it becomes a domino theory, doesn't it? Dr. Jake Herbert is with us today. He is a research associate at the Institute for Creation Research. And we thought it would be appropriate today, what with uh, the increased concern over the California wildfires and so much talk of this being directly a result of climate change, to kind of drill down into some of the facts. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back and do more of just that as Lifeline continues. 536, let's get you an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Jake Herbert is with us today, research associate at the Institute for Creation Research and uh, John Morris was a guest on the program way back in the day, many, many times. Dr. Herbert has his Ph.D. in physics from the University of Texas at Dallas. We're talking about the issue of climate change and whether or not we're actually seeing significant changes to climate or cycles in weather. And let's talk about that for a moment. I I made reference, Doctor, early on to the notion that we've seen a rise in temperatures here in the Bay Area. The summers seem to be warmer. We get more often temperatures in the upper 90s and low 100s than certainly I ever remember going back 40, 50 years. So is all of that indicative of climate change or just uh, some changes in weather? Well, I don't know if we can be absolutely sure at this point, but I do think we've got time to 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 uh, try to understand this issue better. Uh, one, actually, my PhD research was actually re- very relevant to this. Um, people have speculated for a long time that the sun could be having an effect on weather and climate, uh, which may, may sound obvious, but it's not as obvious as you might think because. The energy output from the sun is pretty steady, so it's hard to see how that could. Oh, did we lose him? Did you not pay the bill? (laughs) Do you need to drop another coin in the slot there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that sounds like drop another 25 cents in the slot. Either that or a lot of cases where I just say something really crazy or offensive and they just hang up on me. <laughs> you want to see if you can get him back on real quick? I'll see how quickly he can uh, he can dial a phone here. How good is Nate? He's got an old-fashioned dial phone in there. First, he has to call the operator. Number, please. If you've just joined the conversation, a bit of a pause in the action here today. We've been talking about the topic of climate change, and, um, you know, there's... 
extreme positions to be sure on both sides. And so we're trying to kind of drill down into some of this, particularly in relationship to what we've seen with pronouncements by the governor that we're going to outlaw the internal combustion engine here in California. Oh, if you own one, you can keep it, but everybody will have to buy a brand new, I don't know, wind-powered, battery-powered, solar-powered car. Who knows what the agenda is going to be? Of course, no discussion whatsoever in terms of how we're going to manage to keep those cars on the road that require electricity that is generated by a very small percentage of hydroelectric power. The overwhelming percentage of it is of course, natural gas. So it becomes a major problem. His phone broke. <laughs> okay. Well, so that's it. That's all the news there is fit to print for this edition of Lifeline. And uh, we all go home early. You got some records you want to play back there or something? <laughs> well, I, my guess is, uh, unfortunately, he may have run out of battery, which proves my point. He needs an internal combustion engine on his cell phone, and uh, we'll have to pick up the conversation around the corner, won't we? That's too bad. Well, it happens. That's the joy of live radio, right? So we'll um, we'll pour a fork in that one and call it done for the moment, and we'll uh, we'll have to reschedule Doctor Herbert on a future edition of Lifeline because, uh, as they say, we got. We got other business to take care of. So we'll do that now. We'll get you updated on some traffic, and we will pivot to the issue of fire and where we stand right now in California, particularly with a couple of really deadly ones, and most notably the Creek Fire that has been burning since August. And still, as of today, according to California, only 55% contained. We'll get more for you coming up in a moment. Right now, though, let's get more for you on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Well, as I mentioned um, on the topic of climate change as it relates to the fires today, even well, what, six weeks into fire season, over 11,000 firefighters remain on the front lines of some 20 wildfires that continue to burn across the West Coast. The National Weather Service has issued a red flag warning for many parts of Northern California due to critical fire weather. A weak cold front moving in from Northern California has brought gusty winds and low humidity that began today and will continue through the balance of the week. Local breezy conditions with wind gusts from 25 to 45 miles an hour, some areas prone to as much as 70 mile an hour wind gusts. Therefore, the reason why certain areas are facing the public safety power shutoff, including parts of uh, Napa County and Calistoga, as we sit here today, the Creek Fire down in Fresno County, which has consumed 337,000 acres six weeks into its burn, yet remains only 55% contained. Many of the other fires that we've seen across the state uh, continue to be battle zones, including the Red Salmon Complex Fire of Humboldt County at 62% containment, the Blue Jay Fire in Mariposa County down towards Yosemite at 50% containment, and the Wolf Fire in Tuolumne County only 60% contained. You know, these wildfires certainly remind us that part of the beauty of region of the country in which we live is also part of what makes it so dangerous. And even like the issue of earthquakes in California, 
um, it's always a bit of a, um, shall we say, shadow lurking somewhere uh, behind us that we never know at what point it might strike. And certainly that can put one very ill at ease, especially for children, trying to understand what all of this means and so many elements that are beyond our own control. Joining me now is counselor and author L.J. Jackson, who lives in the region very near the Bobcat and El Dorado fires and literally has to live life on the edge as so many in Northern California have been living for the last six weeks. And, Counselor, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. You know, this is a, sort of a, a, a constant lingering stress for all of us as we look at California on fire, the fire season seemingly starting earlier and earlier, year after year, and the severity growing worse and worse. And it's not just, of course, a threat to our natural beauty, but it's a threat to our homes. It's a threat to our very sense of of safety and security. And for a lot of people, that's got to be terribly, um, how should we say, disquieting and and off-putting to the point where I've got to believe there's a significant degree of emotional turmoil that Californians have to deal with because of this constant threat. Yes, you're absolutely right. Let's talk about that that sense of a lack of equilibrium and how we can better manage all of that. And, and maybe you can touch even on your own life experience. Now, you come to this with a unique background um, as a professional counselor, so certainly there are some tools, so to speak, at your disposal uh, that can help you manage a lot of this. But for the average Californian, we just look out the window and see billowing smoke and think, my goodness, what of me next and my sense of, of, uh, of, of safety and security is at such tremendous threat. How does that impact a person's sense of well-being, and does it have, therefore, um, sort of a, a domino impact on every aspect of our life, how we sleep, how we get along with others, how we deal with the regular stresses in life? Yeah, I think that's a great question because the truth is it does send us on an emotional roller coaster. And I feel like just when you're settling in and just kind of getting used to the beauty of where we live, as you mentioned, then something, you know, a natural disaster or something surprising, you know, hits. And so I think the uh, best way to deal with it is, I would say, is to just... Um, Redefine those moments, you know, because, of course, it's normal and natural for it to rock us to our core, but then saying, okay, so what's within my power, what's within my control, and just tapping into that. And so what I mean by that is, for example, taking video footage for those who have time to prepare, whether it's one minute, five minutes, 30 minutes. And so right now in this moment, I would advise them to go around using their cell phone or whatever video footage uh, camera they have to take video footage of each room so that if they do need to file an insurance claim later, they have proof and evidence of their property and also can prove the value of their property. And then for those, of course, um, that you know have to flee at a moment's notice, I definitely know what that feels like because I myself was trapped in a fire when I was younger with no way out, mm. if you can believe it. And how do you manage that kind of stress? I, I use as a point of example from my own life. Uh, uh, five years ago, December, I'm sorry, five years ago in October, I was diagnosed with cancer. 
And uh, there was that waiting period from the biopsy to the report from the doctor's office where you just don't know. And every time the phone rings, you you jump because you're waiting for that call and you're anticipating news and you don't know if it's going to be good or bad. And there is a three or four day period of time when you will literally are, are living life on the edge and you can get spooked by, you know, the sound of the cat banging the door coming in. Um, is that similar to what people living in these fire zones are feeling, especially when they've not been told to evacuate, but be ready to evacuate, and it could come at any time or it might not come? That's got to be terribly unnerving. Yes, yes. And, uh, wow, that's amazing. Just, you know, when your story, personal story, it just made me think um, in connecting the two or tying them together, it's one of those things where we all – have to unfortunately for different reasons come to grip with our own mortality it's like we on one hand we know that we all you know one day we're born and you know we all have a day where you know we will no longer be here but you know as far as that as they say expiration date we don't know when our time is up here on this earth and so when we get news like you did or or just with those of us dealing with the fires it's one of those things where it reminds us, like, wow, you know, I'm really kind of enjoying life. You know, I'm not ready to go, right? And so it, it causes, I think, the there's power in processing, you know, just in, in waiting for those phone calls or waiting for those moments, just finding power in, um, okay, so what what can I do so that I can anchor myself, I can ground myself? And so whether that's a safety plan or saying, okay, well, if I have X amount of days left or uh, X amount of hours to prepare to flee, you know, I want to make them count. And so if if you're working with your kids, that may be like having a conversation and getting a comfort kit or a plan together, a care plan to take care of yourself emotionally, mentally, physically. That could also look like, you know, whether it's um, health-related or it's fire-related, it's just really taking time to say, okay, what can I do with the trauma? So I think, honestly, processing it through what I call post-traumatic grief. So it's a lot like post-traumatic stress, but instead of dealing with just the stress components of it that it causes, it would be dealing with the grief, the sadness, the the disappointment, you know, the depression that it may cause, and giving yourself permission to to hurt or to feel the pain and not have to feel like you have to be strong enough to stuff it, you know? And, you know, you you get a sense of the loss of control, and I would wonder if some of the things that you've talked about, kind of the, the tools that can be in our emotional toolbox that are also a part of our real le- legitimate uh, practical toolbox, like, you know, having a go bag ready to go, having all of the important family papers uh, set aside that we can take with us at a moment's notice, having a plan and a place to meet if we suddenly are forced to evacuate and the entire family isn't together at that time having that sense of what's going to be our plan and being prepared, that should lend at least a little a little sense of, of comfort to a person who's really spooked by all of this experience, shouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. That's a great point. And actually, there's also, in addition to what you mentioned, um, there's ready.gov, as many of your listeners are probably familiar with, and then there's listos, L-I-S-T-O-S, listoscalifornia.org, and they have a really great ready-made five-step plan 
to help, you know, like for those who are maybe anxious, too anxious to think straight in moments like this. And it really, you know, helps you see what you should have in your grab-and-go bag and what you should, you know, do to prepare your surrounding area. Or just, you know, even if you want to partner or team up with neighbors or, like you said, having that conversation with your family. So, yeah, that's great. And then also, I know for us, when we were, um, you know, like many people, we didn't have anywhere to live. And uh, so we were homeless after the fire, and the American Red Cross was really a lifesaver. So I would definitely suggest also for everyone to have them, you know, just kind of on their safety plan or the important numbers to call list because they, um, you know, will definitely be able to help in one way or another. Being prepared kind of lends itself to even the title of your new book, Sleeping With My Shoes On. And I want to have you maybe comment briefly about the book and then one other issue, and that is for children. You know, home is the place of safety. It's refuge. We tell the kids, if you get in trouble, come home. If there's an emergency, come home. Uh, There is that sense of safety and shelter there. And when that very core, that very symbol of safety is now seriously being threatened, uh, that can be very destabilizing to a young child who has a difficult time processing all of this. What advice can you offer for parents in helping children to cope with the stresses related to these kinds of events? Yes, great question. So in Sleeping With My Shoes On, I take readers on a journey with me of the fire and just traumatic events that kind of uh, are very common in society and that happen to us. And so in that journey, we talk about some key things, you know, with childhood innocence and how to help children, um, just honestly starting with a conversation, because a lot of times we may look at them and they seem fine or they say they're okay, or the older they get, you know, they are kind of, you know, going through that stage of development where they really maybe aren't as talkative as they used to be. So I would say definitely I have... um, tips and and hands-on tools and information in the book. But just to answer your question, I would say, honestly, really with young children, making sure that you approach them with age-appropriate support. So, like, for example, if they're, you know, preteen and and under, I would say art therapy is a good way to, you know, have a conversation with them, whether it's, you know, grabbing something from... You know, just taking on a piece of paper and, and writing down, I have, I can, I will, and I believe. And just having a conversation and saying, okay, like, let's start with, you know, what will we do? And what can I do? And so a lot of times children may say, well, I don't know, like, I, don't, I can't think of anything. And I say, okay, if you did know, what would it be? Let's start with your name. So I am Sally or I am Teresa. I can get through this with my family. I will be okay. We will be okay. So just starting with something simple like that and um, just having that dialogue and conversation, some art therapy, maybe some travel um, right now while you're listening, getting some travel games together, and just some, you know, simple things like tic-tac-toe even. Those things you'll be surprised will actually help soothe a child's mind. And just having that conversation and seeing that, you know, We love this house. We have great memories here, but we have each other, and that's what matters most. And certainly having a a plan in place and giving a child a sense of of security and reassurance 
uh, it can often be the, the big difference between a child coping or failing to cope with the stresses that we're all feeling. The book is called Sleeping With My Shoes On, Personal Experience of My Guest, L.J. Jackson. More information available on the web at personalpowerwithin.com. That's personalpowerwithin.com. And our thanks to Counselor L.J. Jackson for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Here comes traffic. Go! Go! 